please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. So far in the Gospel of Luke, we've considered these two announcements by the angel Gabriel, which ultimately came from God himself. This first announcement was to Zechariah that his wife, Elizabeth, despite her barrenness and old age, would conceive and ultimately give birth to this baby boy, John the Baptist. And the second announcement was to the Virgin Mary, that she would give birth to the long-awaited Messiah, the King in the line of David. And this evening we see the fulfillment of this first announcement, this first prophecy, as Elizabeth gives birth to John, the last Old Testament prophets. So please turn your attention now to the reading of Holy Scripture, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they should have called him Zechariah. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness into the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We are in the season of Advent, and this is a season, as I mentioned last week, where we commemorate the first coming of Christ 
as well as look with anticipation to the second coming of Christ. And this is a season that's not holy in the sense that Scripture doesn't mandate this season upon us, but we can voluntarily celebrate this season. It has many helpful things for us as Christians in our own Christian lives. Last week I mentioned one, one of these helpful things is that it causes us to ask this question. How do we respond to Jesus? The coming of Jesus is an objective historical reality, and therefore how do we respond to Jesus? However, another helpful thing that, that Advent teaches us, reminds us, is that our God is a God who both keeps and explains his promises. We see that here in our passage this evening as we see the fulfillment of God's word in the birth of John. But it's not just in this passage. We see throughout scripture these Old Testament prophecies coming to fulfillment. God is a God who keeps his word and then explains the significance of his promises. And this is an important truth for us, a truth never to forget. We live in a world of broken promises. We live in communities, in relationships, with mutable people, that is, people who change. But our God is a God who never breaks his promise. Everything that he says comes to pass. Our God is indeed immutable, that is, he's not subject to change. So this Advent season, let us be reminded of these promises of God and let them be the stability, our stability, in the midst of an unstable world. Let the promise of God be, be the solace for our souls. Let them be the anchor by which we tie ourselves to. This is needed as we live in the midst of a world that's filled with division, turmoil, turmoil and anxiety. We in, indeed need an anchor, something that's outside of us, something that's unchanging, that's stable. And that anchor is the promises of God. So I want us to focus our hearts and minds on this evening, on this, this basic point. Our God is a God who keeps and explains his promises. Boys and girls, this is the, the big idea of our sermon this evening. Our God is a God who keeps and explains his promises. And I want to consider both aspects of this theme. That God is a God who keeps his word and his promises, and he also explains his promises. So first, let us consider God's promise kept. God's promise kept. So right away in our passage, we see that Elizabeth indeed gives birth, gives birth to this son that was promised to her from that prophecy that we considered a couple weeks ago from, from the angel Gabriel. And she gives birth despite her barrenness, despite her old age. And Zachariah and Elizabeth's relatives and neighbors are present here rejoicing in this great news praising God for the mercy that has been displayed in their life. Now, these relatives and neighbors likely didn't know the full significance of who this baby boy was and what John would do in the plan of salvation. They likely were just praising God for this provision in the midst of their neighbor or, or relative of Zachariah and Elizabeth. It's a great example of rejoicing with those who rejoice. 
This no doubt would have been a great trial in in the life of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And God has provided for them. He's blessed them. And therefore, the community around them are praising God, rejoicing for in this great news. Now, the Jewish, Jewish custom at this time was for the relatives, the neighbors, to be present at the circumcision of a child. And we see that going on here in our passage. And at this circumcision, the child would be given his or her name. And in Judaism, names had lots of significance, meaning. It wasn't just a name. It symbolized something. It meant something. But after a while, names started to be recycled. And at this time, the custom was to use a family name, parents, grandparents, or even beyond. Therefore, these relatives, these neighbors, they're expecting, oh, this this baby boy, he's going to be called Zachariah after his father. This is the expectation. But to everyone's surprise, Elizabeth responds as she's questioned on the name of her son by saying, no, he shall be called John. This leaves the friends, the families in confusion, perplexity. Why would you name him John? There's no one in your family with this name. This isn't customary. This isn't tradition. You're supposed to name him Zechariah. Why are you naming him John? And you, can, you can about imagine all the crowd's eyes just turning to Zechariah. Is this true? Are you breaking custom? And of course, Zechariah can't speak. He's mute, as we saw from a couple weeks ago. And so they give him a tablet, and he writes, no, his name is John. And then immediately, to the crowd's further astonishment, his tongue is loosed, his, his mouth opens, and he starts blessing God. He speaks again, which was, again, according to God's word. He would be mute until the day of, of John's birth. Notice Zechariah. His, his statement here, he goes even further beyond what Elizabeth said. Elizabeth said, no, his name shall be called John. Zechariah says his name is John. Zechariah recognizes that the naming of John is by divine initiative. It's not up to their preference. God has commanded them to do this. Notice the great reversal with Zechariah. The last time we saw Zechariah, he was a man of doubt, a man of disbelief. He was told that his wife would bear a son in her old, despite her old age, despite her barrenness. And he was like, come again. Do you know my wife, how old she is? He responded with doubt. And therefore, he was struck mute and, and likely deaf here as he needed signs to, uh, to, uh, to, to communicate with him. But now, notice his faith. That sign apparently worked. He responds, no. His name is... John. And the people's response to this, we see in verse 65, is fear of God. And fear came on all their neighbors. The people recognize God is in their midst. God is up to something. He is behind this birth. He's behind this name. God is fulfilling his word. And they respond with reverence and with awe and with fear to God himself. Brothers and sisters, this this teaches us, this reminds us that God's word is indeed reliable. God spoke through Gabriel 
that he would do something, and he did it. But this isn't just true of this one prophecy in Luke chapter 1. This is true of all of God's word. So boys and girls, the scriptures, the Bible, it's not just like your other storybooks at home. God's word is true. Everything that you read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is, is true. This is from God's mouth himself. This is also why the church what, why, is so important. Why have we gathered here today? Well, it's to be reminded of God's word, to be instructed in God's word, to be reminded of realities and truths that are not subject to change. Monday through Saturday, we live in the midst of a world that's constantly changing, that's unreliable, that's filled with broken promises. We gather together on the Lord's Day to be reminded of that which cannot change, namely the promises and word of God. Now, I was recently reading the work of a certain, or reading about the work of a certain sociologist, and he was analyzing uh, the question of how does society view the human self? And he was starting to look at the history of Western civilization through the lens of this question. And he developed four categories, relatively simplistically, but I think they're still helpful for, to answer this question. How does society view the human self? And he looked back to the classical period of Plato and Aristotle and noticed that individuals found their identity by participating in the polis, the city, politics. That's how people found their identity. Fast forward to the dawn of Christendom when, you know, conversion of Constantine and the state is confessionally Christian and people find their identity by participating in the church, its rituals, its routines, its calendar. And then fast forward to industrialism, and you have the economic man. People find their identity by participating in economic activities, providing for one's household, putting food on the table. That's where one finds their identity. But now we have transitioned into what this author said, the psychological self in our current society and culture, where one finds their identity in their own inner psychological happiness. And this time, one's feelings, emotions, preferences become determinative to our identity, to how we think about ourselves as, as human beings. Our feelings are authoritative. And this has brought about a great reversal. Almost every other age, individuals were meant to conform to institutions. That's what you see in, uh, with the city and the polis, with the church, with the economy. But now the institutions are called to conform to the individual's feelings and desires, their own psychological happiness. That's why the language, I just feel this is right, dominates our modern discourse. And I think this has much explanatory power for what we even see going on in our own society and culture. But my point in bringing this up is I think that this has influenced how we as Christians think about our Christian identity more than we, we even think. I would imagine most of us have either, we either have or at least been tempted to define our Christian identity, not first and foremost by God's word, but by our own feelings and emotions and experiences. And this leads to a Christian life that feels like a roller coaster. 
It's great when you feel close to God, but, but those times when you feel distant, you start to doubt. Does God really love me? Is God in control? Am I saved? We have it all wrong. It's God, have it all wrong. God's word is what defines us. God's word is what gives us our identity. And our feelings, our emotion, our experience are subservient to that word. You know, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if you've come to Christ by faith, he's promised, I will give you rest. I will give you salvation. And that's true no matter how you're feeling or what your experiences are. This is part of the reason why we as a Reformed church plant so prioritize the ministry of the word. We see the ministry of the word in our public services, not just in the preaching of God's word as we're doing right now, but also in God's blessing at the very beginning of our service, in the declaration of pardon, in the benediction. Because we recognize it's the word, especially the spoken word on the Lord's day is what defines who we are. That's where we find our Christian identity and our feelings, emotions, and our experiences are secondary, are subservient to that word. Again, notice, the people were filled with fear at God fulfilling his word. They recognized the transcendence, the primacy of the word of God. Well, back to our narrative. Again, the friends and the neighbors, they're astonished. They recognize this is a work of God. God is in our midst. And they were talking about these things, laying them up in their hearts, discussing these things on the road. And in verse 66, I think they asked a very, a very good question. What then shall this child be? Many of them didn't know what Zachariah and Elizabeth knew. What then shall this child be? They were wanting explanation. Explanation for the fulfillment of this promise. What does this mean? What then shall this child be? We now see God explaining his promise. So not only does God fulfill and keep his promises, but he explains the significance of his promises. And here he does it through the mouth of Zechariah. Boys and girls, let's say your, your parents tell you that they're going to take you on an adventure. Now, an adventure could mean a whole host of things. It could mean a vacation, or it could mean a day of cleaning the house with mom and dad. So what your parents mean by adventure is pretty significant. You need your parents to explain, well, what is an adventure? In a similar way, we not only need to know that God keeps his word, but we also need to know what these promises are and their significance. Otherwise, we won't recognize how precious, how great these promises of God actually are. And God does this very thing for us through the mouth of Zechariah. But Zechariah doesn't just explain this one promise regarding John the Baptist. Rather, he, he speaks of many Old Testament promises. And he tells us that all of the promises of God are ultimately about Christ. They find their fulfillment in Christ. For example... If you look at verse 69, uh, he begins with this reference to David. This Christ has come in the house of David, and this first sort of half of this prophecy is really about Christ and how Christ is coming. 
And Christ, as we considered a couple weeks ago, is from the house of David, from the line of David. He is the fulfillment of those promises given to David. And then in verses 72 through 75, we read that Christ is the fulfillment to the promises, the oaths given to Abraham back in Genesis. God promised Abraham that through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. We see that coming through to fulfillment with the coming of Christ and then subsequently the apostolic period where the gospel is not just for the nation of Israel, it's now for the world. And at the end of Acts, we see Paul is in Rome, which at that time was the end of the known world. This gospel is multiplying throughout the lands. In verse 71 and 74, these promises to David and Abraham are that Christ would bring salvation or deliverance from our enemies. Deliverance from our enemies. Now, in first reading, this sounds as if Christ is going to bring some sort of political, national salvation. That's sort of how it's stated here. And some have taken this to, uh, to refer to the actual nation of Israel. And this promise is still yet to be fulfilled. Others have taken this as reasons for the church to engage in either social justice or political action. Right? This is, these are political, national enemies. I think we have to look at the context here. The context is that Christ is from the house of David. He is the true long-awaited king. As we considered a couple weeks ago, he's, set, he's setting up this everlasting kingdom. In John 18, 36, Jesus himself says, my kingdom is not of this world. Apart from the church, you can't point at one institution in society and say, there's the kingdom of Christ. The church, which is the embassy of the, our heavenly homeland, is where the kingdom of Christ is found in this age. Therefore, if Christ's kingdom is not chiefly of this world, then it would seem to make sense that our greatest enemies as members of his kingdom are not chiefly of this world. And that's what we find in the scriptures. Our greatest enemies, brothers and sisters, are the tyranny, is the tyranny of the devil, the condemnation of the law, the wrath of God, the consequences of our sin. Because these enemies not only have consequences in this life, but ultimately in eternity. And Paul in Ephesians 6 says this very thing. He says, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. No, you wrestle against the spiritual authorities of evil in heavenly places. Now, that's not to say that Christ won't deliver us from flesh and blood, right? Enemies of this age. But that's not coming until the second coming. And even, even then, that's not our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy are those that, have, that bear upon our eternal destiny and state. And Christ has delivered us from these great enemies. For example, in verse 74, we see this reading confirmed as Zechariah says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. We might serve him without fear. This refers to serving God without fear of condemnation. His condemnation, the condemnation of the law. It's passages like this that caused the authors of our catechism to structure it according to its, its three main headings, guilt, grace, gratitude. 
It's only after we've experienced God's grace in the gospel that we can serve him out of gratitude and not fear. So now going back to verse 70, so we not only read that David, those promises to David, those are about Christ. The promises to Abraham, those are about Christ. But even verse 70, Zechariah says that the prophets of the Old Testament, they ultimately were speaking about Christ. And most of the prophets existed under the Mosaic Covenant, which is most of your Old Testament. And this shows us that the whole Old Testament is pointing to Christ himself. And then in verse 76, Zechariah gets to the last Old Testament prophet. So up until this point, he was really speaking about how the promises in the Old Testament point to Christ. Now he gets to John. He says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This prophecy about John is way more than about just John himself. It's about Christ. John's only significance is that he is the forerunner, the one who is to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. In verse 78, we read, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The sunrise is a reference to the coming of Christ when he comes and does his work of redemption and salvation. And John is the one that prepares the way for the sunrise. Boys and girls, John's ministry is sort of like uh, early mornings. Early mornings when the sun is about to rise, it's just starting to get light outside. That's the ministry of John, when you're saying the day is almost here, the sun is almost in the sky. Therefore, this passage, and more specifically, this prophecy of Zechariah, shows the organic unity of Scripture. Abraham, David, life under the Mosaic Covenant with the prophets, all the way up to John himself, is testifying about Christ. And Paul says this very same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is, in Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is what Zechariah has shown us. The promises of God find their fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes I think we can be tempted to read Scripture as if we are the main character. We read some of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, and we immediately try to apply it to us, to our life. You can just think of maybe the, some of the, uh, the bumper sticker verses out there. We need to recognize that Christ is the main character of Scripture. Therefore, pro- all the prophecies and predictions and, and promises, they're about Christ, first and foremost. They're not about us. However, when we trust and believe in Jesus, it's as if God rewrites us into the script. So that now, as we are in Christ, these promises have significance to us. They have application to us. Again, these promises are about Christ. And insofar as we are in Christ, they apply to us. Therefore, a good reading strategy, especially in the Old Testament, is to ask yourself, whatever you're reading, What does this have to say about Christ? 
And only then can we ask that question, well, how does this apply and bear upon my life? Take a New Testament example, Romans 8, 28, a, a, a verse that we all probably know well. For, all, for God works all things for good. And we like that. I mean, it is a comforting verse. But what does good mean? Does it mean earthly prosperity? Does it mean everything in your life will go well? It's pretty important. How do you define good? Well, if you keep reading, Paul says good means salvation in Christ and conformity to the image of Christ. That's how God is working all things for good. So we see that God's promises, not only to Zechariah, but God's promises in all of Scripture, they're about Christ. When you trust in Christ, the good news is that they're about you as well. Well, brothers and sisters, let us be encouraged this Advent season that the God who kept his word to Zechariah and Elizabeth is the same God who promises to keep his word to you this evening because you are members of his son's body. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that we can gather each Lord's Day, to hear it proclaimed uh, to us. We pray that your word would indeed shape us, shape our Christian identity. And thank you that Christ has indeed come and brought us the long-awaited salvation. It's in his name we pray.